All right, welcome to Cognation. Today we have with us two guests uh, who I'll introduce in a second, um, but just to make sure that you uh, remember who we are, uh, my name is Rolf Nelson. I'm your co-host, and I'm coming to you from Providence, Rhode Island today. And I'm Joe Hardy, and I'm coming from El Cerrito, California. And with us, we have two guests, uh, David Rosen and Scott Miles, who are going to talk to us about the neuroscience of music. So welcome, David and Scott. I'll, I'll give you a second to just introduce yourselves. Uh, so David, I'll, I'll ask you to introduce yourself first. Sure. Um, first, it's great to be here, Ralph and Joe. Thanks for having us. Uh, my name is David Rosen, uh, cognitive neuroscientist. Um, my background is in studying music cognition, the neuroscience of uh, specifically jazz improvisation. Um, I've done some work in other verbal domains um, as well. Um, I'm a musician. I've been a bass player um, in various bands for the last, I'd say, 20 years of my life. And I've been an educator and, and speaking at different um, you know, forms, both academic and more along the lines of the music industry, um, with you know, presenting the research that we're going to talk about um, today. And then Scott and I, I'll give you a little bit of background um, that he can continue. We met um, in our grad school days. I was studying you know, music improvisation, um, looking at what happens in the brains of jazz musicians. And he came uh, to my lab at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Um, and he can tell you a funny story about how he, how he found me. Um, but he came looking at music uh, perception on the other side of things, at popular music, and we our paths kind of crossed then in 2015, and that's when we started, uh, you know, doing research together. Um, and from that point, uh, you know, we started Secret Chord Laboratories together, um, which is a music tech uh, startup company, and we began that in uh, April of 2019. So that's kind of my background and how Scott and I know each other, and kind of the work that um, I've I've been doing over the last decade or so. Great. Okay. And I guess you've already given some information about Scott, but just so we can identify his voice, uh, do you want to say hi, Scott? Uh, this is Scott Miles. Yeah. Um, so uh, this is what my voice sounds like. Um, I'm also a musician and uh, and a music cognition uh, researcher and neuroscientist. Uh, yeah. The story about finding Dave, uh, since he, 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 uh, he teased that a little bit, I was looking for someone to find uh, arousal and valence in the emotional content of music that I was looking at for a, a proposed project that I didn't have funding for yet. And, uh, you know, I was trying to find somebody who uh, who exactly complemented uh, my skills as a music cognition researcher. And I was looking for someone with a little bit more engineering chops. And so I went to Drexel and, uh, you know, so through, uh, through the serendipitous uh, nature of the Internet, I found somebody who perfectly... Uh, complimented my skills and then that guy went to work for pandora in california and they stuck me with dave <laughs> <laughs> well sorry to hear about that yeah um, well, so I mean, he ended up having exactly the same skill set as i did so. <laughs> great to have you guys on the show thanks for having us thanks for having us so the paper that we're going to talk about today or we're going to start our conversation about today is one that you have written together Paper's from 2017. It's called A Statistical Analysis of the Relationship Between Harmonic Surprise and Preference in Popular Music. And that's by the two of you. And then the third author, I'm not going to try to pronounce his last name. It's Norberto Grivich. Grivich. Okay, thank you. Uh, so in this paper, you're looking at, I mean, the, base, one of the basic question here is, does surprise in music cause people to prefer it? Or are more surprising things in music, do they cause uh, greater preference for music? And I'm butchering the bottom line of this, but maybe you want 
describe how you ran the study and what kinds of findings you came out of it with? Sure. Well, this was actually, um, to, to be a little bit more statistically rigorous, this was an association. And uh, the next study we did was a behavioral study to decide if there was causation. That We were looking for that, but this doesn't really show that in our findings. What we did was we looked at, um, there's a there's a corpus um, that's uh, that was transcribed uh, by Ashley Burgoyne at, uh, B- B- at McGill um, in Montreal. And we, what he did for his PhD, it did, uh, it's called the McGill Billboard Corpus. It's about 600 songs. And uh, he transcribed all the different sections and all the different, um, you know, say, labeled all the sections and, and, and named all the chords in the, in the corpus. And so what we did was we said, okay, well, what is different about the top quartile of the billboard charts in this, in this representative sample of the corpus of the billboards charts from 58 to 91 from uh, Johnny B. Good to smells like teen spirit. And uh, what is different between the statistical, any a particular statistical measurement of the top and the bottom of the billboard charts. And what we did is we looked at rarity of chords, which is like a, a measure of, of Shannon entropy, really of information of surprise in the zeroth order transcriptions of the chords themselves. And, you know, what we found uh, to jump to the findings, we found that there was a different, the, 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 the top songs on the billboard charts were higher in absolute surprise and surprise throughout the songs. And that most of this higher surprise was concentrated in the sections that immediately preceded a chorus, the verses that came before a chorus. So as musicians, we looked at this and said, Hmm, you know, this must be some sort of a cognitive, um, you know, the cognitive basis of, of, um, of the dopamine re- release in, in music has been ar- posited to have something to do with expectation. And so what Dave and I drew as an inference from these findings was that there was the, the, this kind of uh, dopamine rush happening when you have this tension and release between the verses and the choruses. All right. So um, you, you mentioned that surprise is determined by information theory. So, you know, if you're thinking about the, you know, you say something like, we like music that's more surprising, but you, get, you have to operationalize that somewhere. You have to be very specific about it. So, what exactly is a surprising so so you're looking at all of the total chords in this corpus of you know this these popular songs on billboard and you take you so you've got every single chord that's in there and then you take the the frequency that a single chord is and so one that would be played less would be more surprising correct right and we normalize by key so normalize by key so everything is standardized to be a single key so we work off of uh, chord functions in that way Okay, I am I am definitely so you have to speak to me like a non-musical expert. Sure. Sure. So basically, you know, there's there's 12 different notes that you could that you could play and could be the ultimately the root or the chord, the name of that chord. It could be an A major or a C major or an F major. And so what we did was with all of the transcriptions of these songs, which basically were hand annotated chord by chord um, for every beat in a song, we were able to um, look at all, all those 600 songs and normalize them, um, standardize them to all be one key so that we could make those um, statistical calculations of rarity um, across the entire set in a normalized fashion. Makes sense. Yeah. So in, in that context, then you're looking for how the surprise or information in a particular chord is related to the inverse of the probability of that chord in the corpus, right. basically. Exactly. Um, exactly. 
So you can and imagine, so, right. So you can imagine, right. That's in that Shannon entropy model. That's like a zeroth order entropy of just like a pure frequency calculation. Uh, you could imagine you could, you know, expand beyond that and look at, you know, higher order dependencies and things like chord progressions, like a famous one in rock music, like a one, four, five, uh, chords progressions like the blues that we see um you know so certain series of chords you can you know move and think about how that happens as you know at various levels um of of time within a song and across songs right exactly and that that makes a lot of sense and that was i imagine that w- would be where you would be going with it uh but in the in the paper you you saw that even with just the zeroth order just the absolute you know, surprise or information of the chords that were played in especially the verses before the chorus, that that was predictive or associated with, I guess is probably the best way to say it, uh, Scott, to your point, a higher amount of surprise there would be uh, more likely in a, a first quartile popularity song, one that's closer to the top of the charts uh, uh, versus the fourth quartile songs, which are you know still popular songs, but closer to the bottom of the charts. That's correct. So from, from that perspective, then, you know, uh, there was the idea that information that, that basically surprise then is positively associated with, um, with preference. And you, so you guys sort of mentioned that, you know, this might be related to, um, to the release of dopamine. Rolf and I were talking about this last night. We were, we were thinking about the fact that like, you know, surprise can be, in this way, in this in this sense of surprise, where you have some uh, reward expectation, which is really what dopamine is encoding, right? It's like not necessarily just a positive reward, but but the some some difference between the expectation for an, a reward and the actual reward that you receive. So that deviation from the reward expectation that can be positive or negative. So right in this sense, how do you see that playing out in music, like? When is this surprise positive and when is it not so? Sure. So, I mean, I like to tell a little anecdote um, about about the our two memory systems to really talk about. I think there's a great analogy um, to music here. And I think it's around the idea that um, dopamine, so we always talk about dopamine, right, is the learning molecule. Um, so, and that, that gap in terms of like what you're, what we're coding neurally and that those predictions, um, there's something rewarding about, um, learning about something that we care very much about in our lives, like music that has such a, an impact. Um, so when we talk about, there's these two memory systems, um, you know, we have, um, outlined by Kahneman and Tversky, uh, we have system one and system two, or system one is more unconscious and implicit. And what we see is responding to um, this like s- surprise that occurs um, in music. We're not we're not really aware or conscious of of it necessarily happening. Um, however, we are constantly tracking in our environments this surprise that's happening around us to reduce error, and that's an adaptive property of of humans. So that's one system, and the second system is more of that explicit memory system of declarative memory, right? Where the things that we, when we sing back uh, the lyrics to our favorite song that we've heard a million times. And so it's like that surprise on the first system and now this explicit and familiarity in the second system. And so I like to tell a story about walking down steps because I think it really, um, a weird set of stairs because uh, it really exemplifies uh, this phenomenon. 
So if I take either of you, Joe or Rolf, and I put you at the top of a, of a staircase and there's a hundred steps, right? And you start to walk down those steps like you would in any building. You know, and after a while, you might say, okay, these are steps and I'm going to look at my phone and I'm going to, you know, text or do whatever because I understand how steps work based on what I've experienced before in the world. I've went down a, a ton of different stairwells. And what I know is that usually after a few steps, I get the hang of how far the steps are apart from one another. And I can now automate that behavior and just continue to walk down the steps. Now, if I say you've gone through 97 of these steps and, and you're smooth sailing and you're thinking you're great and you're great at going down these steps and you're going to make it all the way. But on that 98th step, that 98th step is one foot um, larger of a gap than every other step before. right? And so the odds are is that when that step comes up, um, you know, whoever's going down that stairwell for the first time is likely going to have a nasty spill, um, especially if they're not paying close attention to what's happening. Right. And so when you have that nasty spill, that's a red flag, right? That's a, that's an, that sets off your explicit system too, right? Because you were, you were in this automatic unconscious uh, mode of system one, just kind of, you know, using what you've learned before these very broad rules uh, to the world. And now in this specific situation, because something drastic has happened and caught your attention, um, you're going to encode that, right? And you're going to encode that into your, into your now knowledge of this specific set of stairs. And there's learning happening there. And then if I take you for this next time and put Joe or Rolf back at the top of the steps, and you go down these steps for the second time, um, when you approach this step, this 98th step, there's going to be something that kicks off in you where you feel good. <laughs> not only do you feel good because you're not going to take a spill, but you feel good because you learned this very uh, surprising example of steps, and now you know it. And you get through those steps, and you skip over that 98th and take that extra one foot distance down, and you get to the bottom successfully. And I think that's a really interesting uh, parallel to when we hear things unconsciously and then make these learning associations and become familiar with the things that are statistically irregular in our environment. And that's kind of how it plays out you know, in music as well. And to more directly uh, relate this to the, to the music and how it can be bad surprising, um, I like the story of uh, Back to the Future, you know, when, uh, when uh, Marty McFly plays the van halen the eddie van halen solo at the end of johnny be good and it goes crazy he says you guys aren't ready for this yet but your kids will love it <laughs> you know and so yeah the people who aren't ready for it yet when they go down those stairs maybe they're like two feet tall and that one foot difference <laughs> is gonna kill them you know and so it, you have to be that's why we we like the the interplay between familiarity and surprise it's like you have to be kind of led towards the you know that that staircase can't be too jarring for you or else if you break your neck you're never going to go down the staircase again right because these are also these are also songs that people are listening to over and over again right if it's a you know if it's a top billboard hit and it's on the charts for 10 weeks then this isn't it's not necessarily shocking each time they hear that different chord progression it's like uh what you're saying is it's that feeling of familiarity together with the uh, sort of right and if, know, and if and if and if the yeah if the beatles never did the one six four five you know she loves you and want to hold your hand nobody would ever give them a chance when they started playing the sitar and doing tomorrow never knows and all the crazy stuff on rubber soul and revolver so it's right, kind yeah. of like boiling a frog yeah, so I mean, think that's that, that that was what was going through my mind as I was reading the paper. Actually, is exactly this. This is this seems to be like the meat of the 
of the problem, right? Like how do you right size the amount of surprise and innovation in a piece of music that makes you want to listen, that makes more people want to listen to it. You know, uh, it, it's, it's, it's fascinating because it relates to culture and musical history and, and people's patterns of behavior, what they're listening to. Sure. I mean, how do you and, guys think about that? Well, culture is, culture is expectation, right? So we're not cockroaches. You know, I like to tell the, the make, make the analogy of a cockroach that has its DNA. It's all set and it's wherever it goes around the world, it's going to be the same, right? We're very sophisticated animals. We adapt to our circumstances. We've been nomadic and kind of spread around the world. So when we're born, you know, we have this like 10, 20 years where we're kind of adapting to where we are. You know, it's kind of like, you know, firmware and software on a computer and it's not all hard coded. And so because we learn this stuff, we learn it for, through exposure and, you know, and that's culture and that's, that's what bands us together to the place we are, you know, like, you know, Dave, for some reason he's in Philadelphia and he likes the Eagles, you know? And so, you know, um, we forgive him because he lives in Philadelphia, you know? And so, um, and we have, so, our, we have our Eagles chant that we do, like when they score a touchdown, right? And that's, yeah, that's and it's a all symbol linked. of our culture. And so, yeah, it's all part of this. So expect, because expectation is culture, and I don't want to get too scary about the uh, artificial, the rise of the machines thing about it is, but we try to do this in a good thing is because expectation is culture and because it's based on exposure, if you have a sophisticated enough artificial intelligence algorithm and you understand the properties that you're looking for, which is not just raw information and, you know, audio signal, but actual expectation information about what's, what you're listening to, then you're able to some, in some ways, to some extent, model that expectation and find out where that sweet spot is. And that's kind of at the core of what we do, uh, in our, in our, um, in our software company. Okay. Let me follow up on that and, you know, think about next kinds of steps and, you know, we like science fiction stuff too. So, um, so we know that expectations can be modeled and measured fairly well with EEG, right? So we know that there are some waveforms that can indicate a surprise or sort of a, a shift in a, a mismatch between an expectation and a stimulus, right? I wonder if what you're thinking about potential for getting individual differences in surprise, you know, from different populations, say if you wanted to you know, just for instance, you wanted to figure out what the teenagers are listening to these days. So you bring a, you bring a whole bunch of teenagers who are kind of in, in tune with popular culture in and, you know, measure what sorts of what sorts of individual differences they're showing between groups for surprise. And is this something that you can use to then predict back to a demographic? And um, uh, it, so instead of using, uh, you know, information that's common to the culture, taking individual differences and, and looking at how people are surprised in very different ways. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You just, you just described, um, a, uh, an SBIR, um, application that we're actually working on right now. Small business innovation at, research so, grant. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Yeah. To look at, right. Because you pointed out, um, you know, one of the, the biggest, may, may, uh, one of the weaknesses of, of that paper of the statistical analysis of, of harmonic surprise there is that one, it's calculated purely statistically. And there's absolutely a difference between the way that um, our brains register, you know, a surprising event and how we can track that 
among a group of, you know, a, a population of pop listeners who are, you know, savvy and up to date and have been exposed to the recent pop music to make um, certain predictions. And so that's, we want to then track and see like, what is the difference? You know, wh- where are we missing the mark among different, uh, gr- different individual differences, you know, within pop listeners between the actual surprise that is uh, being signaled in the brain. And then this is what is the difference between that and our statistical calculation of surprise and really linking it all back to other uh, neural correlates of preference and enjoyment to further understand um, the relationship there. So I'm wondering, do you have any intuitions about, about findings you might get out of that? Well, well, one of the things that, uh, so, so we're looking at individual differences. One of the things that's great about looking at the brain is that we're going to have so much data, um, hopefully that we're going to be able to do a lot of different post-hoc analyses. Um, when we, when we look at, so, so one of the things that, that you touched on originally, uh, that Dave's already responded to is, which is the individual differences and the actual surprise, re- um, reaction for in the brains of the listeners. Another thing is just the basic thing of like, do we get it right? You know, are we, are we, when we say this is surprising, you know, is, is there actually a mismatch happening in the brains, you know, in the brain response and electrical, the electrical um, potential uh, response in the brain, you know, that's, that's in this, you know, early right anterior negativity that has to do with this frontal like negativity that, 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 that uh, goes off when you miss have a mismatch of chords and, and expectation. And so that's just another thing is, okay, so if you have that mismatch and it happens in the first 20 seconds of a pop song, what happens when it happens again? Because, you know, Wittgenstein, uh, the philosopher, uh, you know, uh, one time said that, you know, there's no such thing as repetition in music because when you have a, the second note is not the note again, it's the note that was played before and it has, you know, has a, yeah, has a characteristic yeah. of that. And so, um, so we, we, we're just going along with our, with our algorithms and we don't know what the difference is, you know, when something is played again, what the, um, you know, there's no differences, statistics, it's negligible, but the difference in the brain of the listener might be huge. They'd be like, Oh yeah, that's playing again. Oh, when, you know, and then the you know, third chorus is different and it's a different key and you have a bridge, you have those things for a reason. And that's because, you know, we have this thing called accommodation, uh, and sensory perception. I know. You know, if, if you're familiar with uh, vision, you know, you know that we have accommodation. If you look at something long enough, you know, the, the uh, less salient um, parts of the of the visual stimulus go away. Well, the same thing happens um, in, in, in auditory stim- stimulation. And so um, another thing that we're looking at is is the system one, system two, this explicit um, familiarity. So half of the songs, just to give you a little bit of an idea of the design, half of the songs we're going to give to these participants, they're going to hear on an app in the proposal, we're going to, they're going to hear on an app for, for two weeks before they come in. And so you have different groups and different people hear different songs first. And so the idea is how are those expectations and the dopamine release, you know, and the, the sort of um, preference uh, mechanism, the enjoyment mechanism that comes from those expectations being violated. How is that difference different if you know them explicitly, you know? So, so you're actually controlling the stimulus environment of the participants ahead of time setting their expectations a bit. Right. And that can help us because if you know that a certain kind of surprise is, you know, is, is terrible the first time you hear it, but then after 20 listens, it's great. That's really valuable information to give to someone in a record company. Right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, so it sounds like that, you know, there's definitely some interesting things to discuss about how to predict what, would be pleasurable. So surprise is definitely there. Uh, 
there's other factors and we could get into those a bit as well. But I'm interested as as you're talking about this topic, it strikes me that you know this kind of thinking is potentially quite valuable for generative music. So, you know, artificial intelligences that could actually create music. Have you guys thought about that at all? Yeah, that's that's come up um, a number of times in conversations with with uh, music industry partners, also on, on investors and scientists as well, like all around because that there's a big wave of generative music, right? And where I've you know where I see Seeker Chord, uh, I think stepping in and our software dopers, and you know just because what we found in our what we found in our work when we were making we the second portion, I think this is relevant um, from the statistical analysis of of harmonic surprise in pop music. Uh, the next piece was a causal study where we basically modeled um, the the surprise of the top and bottom quartile songs from the Billboard charts, and we generated, like you're saying, with generative music, we made um, kind of 45 second uh, verse and chorus pairs that actually modeled the surprise from the top and the bottom of the Billboard corpus. And there was this step in between the modeling and the the delivery of these songs to actual participants, where we needed a uh, human human ears on these generative, uh, generatively produced songs and harmonies, because, you know, not all of them were very musical or very good. Um, and I think that's where the, the preference piece and kind of where we can leverage um, our knowledge is, is to understand, okay, here's like a number of generative pieces, um, given these restraints or this style of music, um, can you help me filter through um, these different examples and tell me which ones are uh, the most promising and, and musical? You can think of it like natural selection, uh, right? Because if you have like mutations that happen in the genome and then they go out in the real world, it's a brutal process, right? But it's still a process that, that you know, has arrived at the complexity that we have of, of, of the um, biosphere now. And so... What, what you could see is like that that doper uh, or something you know product of secret chord could go ahead and do is not necessarily be instrumental in the in the actual generation of the music which is possible but what Dave is talking about is that it could be involved in the curation or the sort of natural selection survival of the fittest you know you you make a you know a thousand different tunes and then you know the secret chord would be able to through its algorithms, Say which one is the most musical or the most preferable. I I, ha I have to jump in because it, it makes me remind and you you have to be sort of you probably are aware of um, sort of jokes about making the world's best song or the world's worst song. I remember from a few years ago there was it's the world's most unwanted song, which mm -hmm. was a song created by committee. Uh, I think its features were it was about twenty five minutes long. Uh, it was about <laughs> cowboys, Walmart, Labor Day, uh, <laughs> oh, central policy issues. Some of, some of my favorite things. <laughs> accordion, it's featured a lot of accordion music, opera. So it was just like a collection of things that people didn't like, put them all together. Mm -hmm. And it's funny to listen to, although 23, it's not 23 minutes of funny, but. <laughs> uh, and then the world's best loved song, I think, is about, it, it features, it's sort of soft jazz and it's about love. And it's about two minutes long. So I get, I mean, if you think of that as like a, a starting point or what can go wrong with things, um, sure. I, you're, I mean, you're describing a much more subtle method. And I think you're also talking about how to weed out things that would be kind of on the ridiculous end. Yeah. So I'm um, to touch on, on, on that last point you made about the two different kinds of songs. I would say, you know, 
there are certain uh, characteristics, specifically in pop music, um, there are like structural commonalities and kinds of standards and constraints that are baked into an algorithm because they are they exist out in the world in terms of like behavior and what is preferred and decisions that are being made. So that's a piece of this. Um, and in terms of the the other part of, of what you were kind of just hinting at is that um, with best and worst songs, I guess the way that that I think about that and that you know, our conversations go is that there's no reason that when you when you release something to say this is the best song or the worst song, our our vision is of a world where uh, music is going to be, and media more generally, is going to be highly personalized. Um, and there is no one best song, even for the fans of a single artist. If I have an art, uh, we've, I know we've done some pilot tests on, on, a, on a billboard charting um, R&B artist who has an international following of people all from the ages of 10 years old into their 60s and 70s. And if you think about these these models that are based on you know previous exposure and culture and individual differences, then a real strength in uh, this approach is to say, if I have an audience of people in San Francisco who are females between the ages of 25 and 35 for this artist, and I have people in Japan, in Tokyo, who are between the ages of 50 and 60 and male, um, there shouldn't just be one song that is the hit song that is the best song um, for that audience. But by having this more kind of segmented, uh, targeted approach with these individualized expectations, I think we can deliver uh, more optimal uh, you know, content out there to people of what they really want to hear based on those expectations that have been set for them. Yeah. And I guess an interesting corollary of that would be that if you're thinking about it that way, then a song can change over time too, right? A song yes. could be Songs right for it. Yes. I mean, maybe this is, I'm, I'm coming up with these obvious revelations here, but a song, I mean, that would imply that a song sort of has the right qualities for a particular time when, yeah, when look at, the stage look at, is set. Yeah, look at uh, Christmas carols, right? I mean, you have every Christmas carol in the book recorded in every generation, right? Or the song Hallelujah, which is, you know, the where we get the name of our uh, company from secret court, you know, there's songs like that, that are, that are covered in almost every generation and you, everybody kind of gives it their twist to it, you know? Yeah, no, it, 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 so, I mean, one of the things that uh, came to my mind as you guys were talking about that was, you know, even for a given person over time, their, your favorite song might change even within a, you know, a small, like, for example, like I'm a grateful dead fan. And one of the things oh, nice. that, We'll get you, uh, you get your head ripped off, and and one of these in any of these online forums uh, is if you ask people what their favorite Grateful Dead song is, it, you know, a Deadhead <laughs> is always com- immediately offended by the just the fact they're asking that question because it's like yeah, wow, you should be all... asking your what's your what's your favorite version of Dark Star ever live? <laughs> yeah, exactly, right, exactly. <laughs> and so you know, th- there there is like, yeah, th- I think that that point is is important that like there's not going to be like a best song you know it just doesn't really even make sense there yeah, be... that, uh, yeah. and one of the and this know, is probably you know. obvious to david and scott i think you're you're probably like okay you guys came to this conclusion after thinking about it but it is really an interesting thought all these different reasons why there can't be just a, you, you can't just sort of have an absolute best song it's all about yeah matching it to the person and the time and everything well let's use this moment to take a little bit of a break and uh we'll come back and go over some of these other interesting findings Thank you. 
All right, and we are back talking to uh, David Rosen and Scott Miles about the influence of surprise in how we prefer popular music. So extending this idea uh, a little bit further, so uh, what other what other kinds of research exists out there that can tell us about how how surprise plays into our preference? Right. So. So we went in, into this um, into our analysis, and it, and it makes it sound almost like it's this static thing. Like maybe when you know Dave talked a little bit about individuals uh, being different because of their different exposure, but what really what you can see is that this kind of effect um, happens over time on, on, on a broad scale, and it, and it effect it kind of feeds into itself, you know, in sort of this meta kind of way. And because so, um, I think we have a. Um, uh, a line uh, in in our upcoming paper, which is uh, about surprise increasing over time in popular music and preferred music in the top quartile sort of, of the billboard music in harmonic surprise. And I think it's this, um, it says uh, the, the expectations of, of yesterday of, of, you know, what is it? The expectations of today once thwarted become the, the yesterday's, uh, you know, expectation violations of tomorrow or something like that. Some, some, uh, you know, sort of Lewis Carroll, uh, uh, Alice in Wonder thing, Wonderland statement in our, in our academic paper. And basically what it means is that you, you keep needing more and more. Uh, it's kind of like tolerance to, uh, to a drug or to, uh, any sort of stimulus. And, uh, it's not necessarily the people who need more, but it's the population over time, uh, that, that kind of ramps up and adjusts to this, um, you know, because, you know, like what, something that's violated and, you know, when the Beatles do something and it's crazy or, you know, Elvis moves his hips and it, and it you know, and that, that's something, so, you know, and not in the music itself, but culturally it's like, oh my gosh, now somebody has to do something more shocking and more shocking, more shocking to get the same, the same result. So you think, so, so one, actually when you said people don't do this, but now that made me wonder, is that, is that something that uh, total music heads might be, you know, that's something that, you know, as you as you adjust your preferred music, you might be doing it because of tolerance for something like that. That you want something more. Right, right. Well, there's there's yeah. an interplay here because you have the. It's not linear over time, right? Because if you if I were to ask you, uh, Joe or Rolf, if I were to ask you what your what is the best music of all time is, I guarantee you, you would talk about something that came out, you know, or at least that you were listening to. When you're between like 15 and 19 years old, yeah, that's right. That's such and that's such an interesting effect. So the rest, yeah, the the music today is crazy. It's stupid, but but the, everybody has that preference, you know. And so and so you have that linear effect having over over time where it gets more and more surprising. But somehow this is happening between the ages of 15 and 19 years old. This this effect is being driven by cohorts of 15 to 19 year olds over time. Right. Who have all been living in an environment where the children's music is exactly the same throughout the decades, pretty much in terms of the complexity of that's like the simple children's music sets us up and sets those kind of the the regularities that we talk about and what leads to surprise. It's like because in those ages of of your adolescence, where you're forming your closest social bonds and your identity with your friends and having these like meaningful experiences to yourself as an individual, yet living within a, a you know a similar common culture, you've you've had the same uh, expectations set through the music you're exposed to as a kid. 
Right. And you, well, if you listen to, you know, some of the Disney music now is, you know, is, is like has triplet rhyme, you know, triplet uh, hip hop kind of aspects to it and stuff. You know, this zombies uh, show that this movie just came out. My, my six year old is really into, um, has some Hamilton type aspects to it. But um, it's interesting also that you have this phenomenon called, called reminiscence bumps. And so what we do is we look at 20 years of music and it kind of ramps up every anytime you look at it. It's almost like a fractal effect. And this is the paper we have coming up. Um, yeah, I'm going to guess what this is already. So I know and I was going to say, so I know that I I'm hearing more of my kids music now because I have kids that are sure. starting to be right around that age. And I'm and I'm going to predict you're going to say that. It's a generational thing, so that you may yeah. be listening you, to. You listen to the music your parents. That's that's kind of like the music your parents listen to. So, like the eight, the nineties is coming back now. You see kids walking down the street with Nirvana shirts on. Like I don't know, I saw Nirvana in New York <laughs> City in nineteen ninety three, but these kids don't know who Nirvana is. You know, but like it's, it's predictable and it's predictably cyclical, like that. That it's a it exactly that, exactly that yeah, exactly year exactly. or so timeline. Yeah, I heard these yeah, kids no, on the beach. Sure. This um, this summer, I heard some kids on the beach. I, t- I texted Scott as soon as I was listening. I was on the beach. <laughs> Metallica. Eighteen-year-olds had a Metallica. There. No one knows more about Metallica. No one lo- knows more about them or loves them more than me in the world. The kids like eighteen. Like there's some people who've been seeing Metallica for for thirty years. You know, and yeah, I think and, the uh, that's, that's then, amazing. Then us adults don't get any credit for being cool by. It doesn't transfer to us at all. No, 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 <laughs> no. no but, the parents but, never get any credit. Yeah, but I remember, you know, when I was a kid, you know, listening to, you know, like Frankie Valley and, you know, and like, and, uh, and, you know, all those oldies songs on my mom's record player when I was a kid, mm-hmm. you know, and I wonder how that, you know, influenced, you know, my, my preference for music. But so you have these kind of explicit uh, expectations that are developed that like happen every 20, 30 years. And that shows up in this, in the cyclical nature of time. And, and then of, of, you know, of, of time in, in popular music. And then you have, you know, you, you wonder how much it's kind of like then reinforced and kind of baked into the system where they kind of expect it and make it happen. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I definitely, you know, so I, I, am a child of the seventies. And so, I mean, all my friends and I all listened to Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and all that kind of stuff when we were kids, you know, that we were, I mean, as teenagers, we listened to that stuff that, you know, we heard when we were kids first that was so like, wasn't even timely when we were listening to it. Right. It was like, right. When we were born. Uh, it's interesting. You know, the other thing is like preferences uh, are formed in that age, sometimes even earlier than 15, but like, for example, like for sports teams, you know, like right. you know, the, you talk, we're talking about the Eagles, the Philadelphia Eagles before, but like, you know, like, I'm a Red Sox fan and a New England Patriots fan and well, Boston. Celtics if you think fan. about it, yeah. I haven't if lived think, there in 20 years. Yeah. Well, that's because that's, that's when you're getting ready to fight for your land. Right. I mean, that, like <laughs> if you look evolutionarily rise, right. You, when you get to be like 16, 17, 18 years old, you're going to have to die for your, for your land. And so you have to develop a, an attachment to what's going on around you culturally. Yeah. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. So here's a here's a question for you. So you and you would know more about um, what a what a good theory of what music is for, maybe an evolutionary explanation of music. But I know that one one proposed explanation is that uh, music can be for communal synchrony, right? So drums around the fire, right? And I wonder. This is totally speculative, but I wonder if you have thought about how 
musical listening is changing in the age of COVID when we don't have huge groups gathering together to, you know, to experience the rhythm at the same time. You know, you can't go to concerts. Um, so what is music listening like now? Or maybe your, what's your experience of music listening now? I got to say that no, I'm not going to live concerts, um, you know, is, is one of the things I miss, miss the most. Um, I think we're talking about, you know, sync, neural synchrony is one correlate of that experience of just like, you know, one piece of such a great phenomenon when you, you know, what's led us all, me and Scott here is, is standing in a building with thousands of people um, where, you know, a few other humans are on a stage with air vibrating at certain, you know, at certain paces and frequencies being created and hitting our eardrums. And yet we like, we're all melting during a common moment and experience um, all together. Um, mm -hmm. so no, that's not happening. And I know there's, you know, there's, you know, webcasting and lots of shows like that, but you know, when I experienced those, you know, I've done the webcasting before and I've been to live shows. I'm also a, I'm a fish fan and they do, when I can't make it out to, to a show, I I'm webcasting at home, uh, with my wife and friends. And that's a fundamentally different experience. But I do think that that, um, to think about, you know, those are different experiences that happened before COVID. And now it's just more so the case, not having the live experience with COVID is we discuss, we talk all the time about um, a, one dichotomy and listening is a uh, passive versus like active, like on the edge of your seat listening. Right. And mm -hmm. so, you know, when I close my eyes and I just want to chill out for 30 minutes and like put on a cool new EP by a band that I like and really like listen closely, um, that is like a quintessentially different type of, of listening experience than some ambient um, electronica music that I have on in the background with no vocals to help me work uh, during the day and knock out some like emails. Mm -hmm. And, and so those are, you know, those are like really interesting topics for further exploration that I haven't seen um, much work on at this point, the studies that I know we designed and others have, um, have required this kind of active, um, really close listening. And then the next question I think is, well, in terms of people tracks on Spotify and streaming on YouTube and all those things, um, is there a way to, uh, you know, classify those different types of listening and have any insights into what's driving what types of music in those different contexts? Yeah, and it's interesting, the feedback that the artist is getting is different too. I mean, talk about bands like Fish, and we were talking about the Grateful Dead a little bit. You know, those those bands work out their material on the stage. So they'll have a song going in that they might that they wrote, but it isn't done, right? It's 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 continuing to get worked out on the stage and the feedback of what people are responding to is direct in that way. And you just don't have that without live music. And there, I mean, versus other, you know, types of music, which are, you know, all purely pre-produced, you're getting feedback from maybe the, the immediate circle of people around you who are saying, oh, that's cool, you know, add this or take that out. But, you know, you just don't have that, that feedback loop of, of that live performance yeah, and the, right now. Right. And that's not, it's not just with COVID. I mean, you have a lot of, you know, you had like a Lil Nas X with, you know, the hit with the Old Town Road. Kind of, you have a lot of, or like Phineas and uh, and Billy Eilish, who are uh, who are making music, you know, on their laptop in their bedroom, and they don't have the, uh, and that's just kind of a fact of what's what's happening because of what technology is allowing, even, you know, even uh, barring any pandemic, and that's kind of what you know, ten years ago, uh, you know, this coming summer, ten years ago, I was making an album. I was up in uh, in Cambridge, and I was working for a neurologist up there in Massachusetts, and. Uh, you know, that's that's kind of how the idea came up for us to start this research. 
was that I didn't have any, you know, I kept sending my friends back at home, like MP3s of the different bridges that I've written for a song. And they're like, you know, I'm not playing gigs. Like I'm doing research, you know, I'm like, I'm looking at, you know, brain images all day long. I don't have time to go out and gig and I don't have the money and the resources to bounce this off. And so one of the impetuses of secret chord and the research that we've been doing is to give someone sign up kind of that sounding board that, you know, nothing will ever replace, of course, you know, going out and, and, you know, and workshopping material on a stage, but this would maybe somehow give someone a little bit of an idea as to, you know, what their tweaks and changes are doing. Oh, that's fascinating. I mean, I think that, that, that probably leads us directly into the, into the robo apocalypse question. <laughs> <laughs> but you've been forewarned about so yeah we, we, yeah, we've so, gotten it before yeah sure so, i mean sure we, we, we're, we we're worried about that. we're musicians you know we're worried about that too you know yeah 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 so in in the in the worst case scenario how could the like not necessarily like your thing that you're working on right now but like the extension like the logical extension of of this line of reasoning how could that lead to robots taking the world over or other sort of apocalyptic outcome. Well, if you look at... I'll I'll add one more quick one to it, which is what is the, what's the theme song to the Robo Apocalypse? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, you could be mine, (laughs) I guess. You know, from from Guns N' Roses and... Well, it it depends, it depends who you are and where you live. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Contextual, expectation based. So, so you look at what, what's happened in the past, right? And you have, see, this is the scary thing is, right? In the past, you've had with the Industrial Revolution and then the, the, you know, the Information Revolution and then now the Artificial Intelligence Revolution, you've had what, – what happens is you have people's jobs up, you know, upended and it's you know, this manual labor or, or, or repetitive tasks or anything involving you know, what's replaced – and then those people, the idea is, okay, well, now you go get a gig and you do Uber or you, you become a graphic designer for a website and you, all, these, all these jobs that are more creativity and more service oriented come and replace them, replace putatively are going to help, you know, in the economy and kind of stand in the way and, you know, and, 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 um, and replace the jobs that are displaced. And that's always sustained itself, you know, to a certain extent you know, overall that, that we've been able to, you know, create more jobs than, than are, than are taken away. And if there is the training for that, right, that's the big thing. So, so there's creative and there's service industries that are still kind of, um, you know, kind of rising up and, and taking the place of all these, um, these jobs that are replaced. But the question is what happens if, when computers can serve and computers can, can be creative. And so that's the dangerous thing. That's what I think, you know, it kind of at the corner that the, this question gets kind of pushed into is like when we have creative computers or if we have, you know, computers that can be of service to you know, elderly people or, um, you know, and, and food service and that sort of thing. That's to me is 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 the question of where it gets scary. Yeah. And so, if, I mean, I guess my idea of the sort of utopian future is, you know, people sitting around flourishing, doing the things that they want to do, which would probably be, you know, listening to music, creating music, that sort of thing. You know, what are we going to do if we can't even make good music? I think, I think, I guess I think about, I, I hear that. I mean, I spend a lot of time making music and a lot of the time that I spend making music is in, is intrinsic. It's an intrinsic motivation. Um, 
I do quite a bit of research on creativity and, and flow states, achieving this like, you know, optimal experience where you're fully engaged and it's intrinsically rewarding because it's a sense of something you really care about and you develop a discipline and a skill around, right? And you're, and, and, and giving those tasks and having, you know, having AI and robots have them is, is scary. But I think in reality that humans are going to continue, we're going to, whether there's AI making music or not, humanity is going to continue um, to immerse themselves in these types of activities because what they feel and what they get out of them at its core um, give us meaning and give us purpose in our lives. And it's not every time someone sits down at a piano or picks up a guitar, it's not to get the most streams or to be predicted to make a certain um, you know list. Um, so that's like kind of one piece. And the other, I guess I'd say is that when we think of, of uh, you know, algorithmically, you know, predicting, uh, you know, how, how something will be, um, you know, enjoyed or preferred by an audience. Um, we always talk about that as, as one of uh, many data points that people are going to use. Um, I think to, to really as, as a point to check uh, their gut when there's many, right now, there's many subjective opinions, uh, you know, around the table when there's decisions to be made about, you know, what artists are to be signed or what song is going to be the single. And I think, to have that data point um, on that side on the business end, but then also on the on the production side for the artists to say, "Hey, I'm in a rut, and I want some feedback about how my song compares. Maybe this could help me tweak my writing style." And so the other part of this, the vision of you know science and technology and this this singularity is that there's like this this symbiotic relationship where I can actually progress my own style and understanding of myself as a composer and what things I do repeatedly and what habits I fall into and maybe use that as a way to, you know, push creativity in, in actuality. Well, that seems like a, a great place to, to stop it on a, on a high note, a positive note. I would like to, to thank you both, uh, David and Scott, for for being on the show. Very interesting conversation. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks, yeah, for, thanks having for having us. us. It was fun.